Hi, I'm Harlan Krumholtz, and welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. This week, for our first season's final episode, we have Dr. Patrick Gee, a tireless and innovative patient advocate. After receiving his PhD in Justice, Law, and Criminology, Patrick worked in corrections for many years. In 2013, Patrick learned that his kidneys were failing, the first member of his family to have kidney disease. He began peritoneal dialysis treatment, which uses the lining of the abdomen to filter toxins from the blood and allowing patients to do dialysis at home. After exercise and diet adjustments, Patrick became eligible for kidney transplant surgery, which he received in April 2017. However, his kidney required four additional surgeries to begin working. Since 2014, Patrick has become a voice for all kidney patients, acting as a board member and patient advocate for the American Association of Kidney Patients an ambassador to the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, and as a consumer advocate for countless other kidney organizations and nonprofits. This September 2019, Patrick founded iAdvocate Incorporated, a nonprofit organization that disseminates educational resources on diabetes, obesity, kidney disease, and cardiovascular disease in underserved communities. It's just really remarkable all that you've accomplished and what you've been through. Well, good morning. And um I thank you just for the opportunity um, to be here and just kind of share my story. You said, and I'm just quoting uh, from you, I'm a voice for the voiceless and a face for the faceless. I work to make sure kidney patients are considered in decisions that will affect us all. L- let me just ask you just to get started so, so the folks listening can get to know you a little bit. Can, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and and tell us about you know, what happened to you when you discovered you had this issue with your kidneys? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. I now live in uh, Chesterfield, Virginia, which is uh, one of the tri-city areas surrounding Richmond. Um, went to high school, Thomas Jefferson High School in Richmond. Uh, went to Howard University, then the University of Richmond, then um I got my um, doctorate at American University um, in Justice, Law, and Criminology. Um, I retired after um, over 20 years of service for the Virginia Department of Corrections um, because of the kidney disease. And, um, you know, being a voice for the voiceless and a face for the faceless, this is my journey led to my ministry. So this isn't like a hobby or anything. It's my ministry. How did it start for you? Because as I understand it, you were, you were pretty healthy till this came on you. And, and what was the first thing that happened? I had an endocrinologist that was my primary care physician. Um, starting back in 2003, um, I knew that diabetes ran on both sides of my family, but I never knew what diabetes was. 
um, you know, in the community that I grew up in, you know, broken African-American community, you know, all we knew was sugar. So there was no, there was not that terminology of diabetes. Um, in 2003, I was at work. Um, at the time, I was a captain um, slash institutional training officer for two prisons in um, the state of Virginia. So I had a lot of stuff wow. that was really going on um, in my duty. So it was nothing for me to work anywhere between 16 to 20 hours a day. Um, I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. And then I went to sleep for a couple of hours, got up, took a shower, and just went and did the same thing. Um, I was also working a part-time job um, in, for the Virginia Department of Juvenile Justice. Um, so, you know, I was really busy, but I was always um, an advocate, even working in the Department of Corrections. Uh, I was a member of Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Um, every institution that I worked at, um, we adopted the schools in that particular area because uh, the schools were in such um, disarray and a lot of dysfunction going on between um, not having the economical resources to kind of provide for the kids. You know, we took it upon ourselves to, you know, purchase school coats and school supplies and sometimes even to pay for school lunches. Um, you know, for some of the kids there so that they can have, you know, nutritional um, food. So one particular day, I'm just exhausted. Um, you know, I'm feeling lethargic, uh, you know, can barely get out of my chair. And uh, one of my sergeants told me to go to medical, just get with the nurse. So I went to medical and the nurse looked at me and she said, um, are you diabetic? And I was like, no. What is that? She said, you know, have, has anybody ever checked your glucose level? No. What is that? Well, just let me, you know, do a finger prick to test your glucose level. So when she did, my glucose level was 758. Oh, wow. So at that time, she requested me to give her um, the keys to my vehicle threatened to call the state police and have me arrested <laughs> on site if I refused to do it and had one of the nurses to drive me to the nearest emergency room um, to where they did more blood work and found out that my A1C was like 11.7. How old were you at that time? We want to say I was in my 40s. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so of course, in 2003... I'm now being diagnosed with having um, type 2 diabetes. So, um, you know, I get introduced to my endocrinologist who ends up becoming my primary care physician. And of course, just like, you know, most typical hard-headed men, um, she prescribed medication and I told her, look, I'm too busy to take it. So I kept on... Uh, <laughs> That that's not no, unusual, I'm, I'm, I guess. No, yeah. no, and I'm being perfectly trans, you know, I'm being honest and transparent. Um, you know, I kept working the same um 
hours. Um, I wasn't eating a healthy and well-balanced meal. And about two years later, um, my glucose readings were worse. So then I was put on not one, but two forms of insulin. So that kind of got my attention, especially since I had to stick myself and I, you know, had a fear of needles. So I was like, wow, you know, it's okay. So I started, um, you know, taking insulin. Can I just back you up one second? Cause I'm just, yeah, one, yeah. just cause this gets to one thing I think that's interesting is in the medical profession, you know, we default into these terminology. We think everybody knows what diabetes is. Everybody knows what glucose is. And, you know, even somebody like you with a doctorate, highly educated in, in a, you know, very high functioning job. In other words, at that point, you still may not have had the deep understanding about your health and what it meant to you. Was that right? Or Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, clarity in my diagnosis. Um, you know, somebody that grew up um, in a low-income community, um, we didn't get a lot of pre-education information. So as an example, when I was in high school and we had health class, you know, nobody told us anything about the kidney function, that diabetes was the number one leading cause for kidney disease or even the, the word diabetes. Yeah. Again, you know, it's sugar. And that's what everybody, you know, my my mother, my father, my aunts, my uncle, my grandparents, that's all they said. You know, oh, you don't want to get the sugar, the sugar. So I'm like, okay, diabetes must mean I eat too much sugar. Yeah. And I had to wait until after I got it. And then when I started investigating on my own, I gained a better understanding. And it's unfortunate. <laughs> Um, that this still goes on today in, you know, certain regions of our society. Yeah. So so then uh, you ultimately were, were put on insulin, and, and then what happened after that? Well, being put on insulin, like I said, I had a fear of needles, so it took me a minute to kind of um, get adjusted to it. But, you know, taking insulin and not really being – I was told that I needed to eat better, but I wasn't given examples of exactly what a diabetic diet looked like. I wasn't given, you know, like solutions, like it's not just about your diet. You really need to get between seven to eight hours of rest every night. And when folks were talking to you about your, your treatments and the options that you had for how you're going to be treated were you involved? Like, did they pull you into those conversations? Did you make those decisions together, or were people just saying, "And here's a prescription"? Right. It was like, "Here's the prescription. You need to take this insulin, um, like one insulin. I just took once a day in the morning. Um, the other insulin I took um, the required doses before each meal, and that was it." And you weren't you weren't really told here's some options for you, but it was more like here here's here's what you have to do. Exactly. Yeah. So that was my mindset at that time. I thought, well, the insulin must be the super saver drug. So as long as I'm taking it, I'm all right. But every time I would go back and do labs, 
my glucose levels were never improved. And were you check were you checking your blood levels every day or just when you went in for labs? I had to check my blood levels um four times a day. Yeah. Started checking once I got up in the morning and right before each meal. So yeah, I was doing that religiously. But you couldn't get your glucose down. Right. So I kept on that regimen um up until um April of twenty thirteen. And at that time, here again now, from 2003 to 2013, so in 10 years, I was never told that diabetes would lead to kidney failure. So April of 2013, I go for just a routine um, visit with my primary care. And at that time, she tells me, hey, you are at 35% kidney function. And I'm like, what? She said, yeah, you're at 35% kidney function. So I'm going to refer you to a nephrologist. So now I'm still in shock because here again, I really don't know exactly what my kidneys are supposed to be doing. I know I have two kidneys. I don't really understand the functions of my kidneys. And then telling me that uh, I referred you to a nephrologist, I'm like, well, who is a nephrologist? It's a kidney doctor. Okay. But, and there wasn't a lot of follow-up. There wasn't, hey, well, let me sit down and break down exactly what the kidney does. You know, the kidney removes, you know, the waste and the toxins out your body. None of that. Um they never told me that, you know, this, because of these toxins, it could lead to um, heart disease, you know, issues with your pancreas, um, even with my liver. It was none of that. I received none of that until I went to my nephrologist. And, and how, how long was that? I mean, what were people telling you about it then if they, if they weren't telling you that? Well, um, before I started dialysis, and um, again, I was told that I was at 35% April 2013. I went um, and met with my um, nephrologist April of 2013, and he told me, he said, yeah, um, since you're at 35%, what I'm going to do is to have you to stop eating certain foods. Eventually, you're going on dialysis, but we want to slow it down. At my clinic, I was afforded the opportunity to take a kidney education class, and that's where I learned everything. I was given two options. Either I can do in-center hemodialysis, or I could do home peritoneal dialysis. I was taken across the street to an in-center hemodialysis facility where I walked in and within about a minute, I started crying. As a grown man, I'm standing there and I'm crying because it was cold. I was looking at paramedics rolling people out of the facilities. Um, it, it, was, it was eerie. I've never 
seen so many amputees before in my life. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I, I can't do this. So when I got home and I talked to my wife, I said, I'm going to do peritoneal dialysis. Well, well Patrick, let me, I want to, first of all, for people listening, I want to uh, just reiterate what I had said at the beginning about this, because people, the peritoneal dialysis, the hemodialysis, the hemodialysis, just for folks listening, is is when you're basically, um, your blood is is taken from you and put through external filters and then returned to you um, with the waste products having been filtered out, doing the work of the kidney, that, that right. you're connected to a machine that's essentially doing the work of the kidney, whereas the peritoneal dialysis is something where, where fluid is, is actually um, put into your body and being filtered by your own body cavity, and you're not being hooked up to a machine that way, but you are uh, being hooked up to fluid that's coming in and out that, that is basically uh, filtering your blood, uh, allowing your body and your body cavity to kind of be the filter for that. And uh, Right. But, but one thing I, I wanted to roll back to is, you know, you went from someone who was, who was just a, a passive, you know, uh, passenger on this on this journey, you know, where you, you're coming into offices and people are talking to you and then you're leaving with instructions. But it seems to me that th- at the beginning of the journey, you are delegating a lot. Like you're just showing up and doing what you're, you know, and trying to, to follow what people are telling you. But, but you get now you get to this stage and you're more activated. Like, in, and like you said, you took the kidney course. You're, you're, it's not just that you're being exposed to education, but you're, it seems like your attitude is is shifting towards thinking like, well, I think I got to start taking some responsibility here. I got to start getting educated and understand what's going on here because it's getting serious. Right. Because what I would do is um, I ended up joining um, the um, Quality Insight In-Stage Renal Disease Network. And that's where I really got my education. Yeah, it was so, it was when you started talking with other patients that you started getting activated. Hmm. Right. So when I would come back to the clinic, I ended up, you know, I was, uh, you know, for a while I was dubbed the troublemaker because, you know, if a nurse didn't um, practice good hygiene, but you you sit here and you tell me to wash my hands for like an entire minute or two, but you are not doing it and you're going to touch me. No, you can't do that. I'm hearing that this is the latest modality. How come I wasn't informed about that? These are current treatments and options. Um, How come I'm not being told about that? So when I would come in for a visit, you know, you can just see people's body language and their disposition would change and be like, oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> How did you even learn about that network? I mean, was it all at a distance or you saw each other? Uh, no, uh, another patient told me when I was sitting in the <laughs> lobby to go wow. see the doctor, yeah. you, know, you know, there was a patient said, hey, did you know about this? Did you know about that? And I'm like, no, where you get that from? And it was like, look, man, just go on the website. Um, uh, applications gonna come out. It, it, it was like a secret. Hey, you. Yeah, I got. Yeah. I got to tell you about this thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, and and I, you know, they they literally saved my life. 
So, and, 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 and you, you end up talking to other patients who are facing similar problems on this network. Is that how it works? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I am the patient advisory committee chair for wow. this network. Wow. And there are um, there are 18 networks all over the United States. What's what's the name of the network? It's um, Quality Insights. Um, end stage renal disease network five. It's a it's a nonprofit that just sits for helping patients. No, it's through um, it's a branch of CMS. Oh, I didn't even know that. That's yeah, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's a government supports this. Exactly, and their primary focus is the interest of the patient to make sure that they educate the patients to make sure that the dialysis facilities are doing everything by law. If there are any grievances, they go through the network. The network handles this. Um, there are cases where they may have to bring the state in to kind of facilitate certain things. But So, the, so this, is where you, this is where your transformation began because as you were connected to these other folks, you started hearing things that said, you know, you can stand up for yourself. Is that, is that, because this is a common theme we've been hearing through a lot of the podcasts, which is as patients start getting connected to other patients, both information and courage was spread. You not only went through this as a, as a patient and as someone who didn't have a lot of knowledge about this particular area, but as an African-American. And we know that in this country, there are marked disparities in care and outcomes. There's both, you know, individual acts of, of bias and racism, but there is also structural racism within our system. Do, can you just speak to what, what's your experience or perspective on the special uh, needs and, and issues that reside within communities of color? Because on, on one hand, we are talking about patients as being in a dependent position and often being intimidated from questioning power. But then when you add on top of that, you know, either being poor or from, you know, uh, a community of color. With the medical atrocities that have gone on with the history in the United States, um, there's a there's a big distrust with the healthcare system. Um, you know, you can bring up the Tuskegee experiment on syphilis. You can bring up Henrietta Lacks. You can bring up the past mistreatments where um, African women were used when it was coming, trying to develop the science for um, gynecology, even to right now with the, um, with the number of maternal deaths, um, you know, and the lack of prenatal care. And with black women being at risk, um, a greater risk for heart disease because if they go to the emergency room and say they have chest pain, then nine times out of ten, they're gonna be, you know, they're going somebody's gonna say, hey, well, it's nothing. Just go and take some Tylenol and go home and you'll be all right. And then find out a couple of days later, you really had a minor heart attack. Um Black men not being, um, not trusting the physicians to even go and get a prostate exam. 
because of the things that are going on in the um, medical community. Even when it comes to kidney disease, um, there's a big uproar with the um, with the EGFR rate because now um, research has shown that um, people of African descent aren't being di diagnosed quickly or accurately for, um, um, you know. Well, uh, uh, a, lot of the <laughs> a lot of the metrics were developed on in white populations or at least in populations that were predominantly white. And, and you're absolutely right. There's all right. these issues and, and we're still struggling, like you said, to today. Uh, to, yes, you know, I with mean, disparities. I mean, if you think of it, as of 2017, there are only 4% black physicians in all specialties in the United States. Right now, there are um, black clinicians who are leaving practice because of some of the health equities, you know, um, food insecurities, um, lack of, you know, pre or post educational health information. Um, everybody wants folks to eat um, a healthy diet, but how can you eat a healthy diet if the nearest grocery store is between um, five to 10 miles and there's no bus on that route or you can't afford a lift? Um, so, so what do you what do you think that means for a for a black patient who who does get into the office and wants to, you know, ask a lot of questions and get involved? So, when you get in and a physician is talking to you like a peer instead of a patient, and you ask them to, can you simplify everything you just said? That now becomes the challenge because now they think, okay, well, maybe you don't have the, you know, educational crewman to understand what I'm saying. No, I'm not a physician. Right. So if you can talk to me like a patient that literally cares about their health, then it, it would allow me to be able to, you know, understand what's going on and the kind of you know, to partner in this. So now patients need to be partners. So they need to not be afraid of asking the tough questions, but don't leave until your questions have satisfied you. One of the things that happened to you was now through the course of this was that you ended up getting a, a kidney transplant. And actually that didn't go so easy. I mean, you actually had to have multiple surgeries and it was a long course. What, were there lessons from that experience? I mean, what, what did you come away with from that, um, that, that you can share? Um, yeah, just so I can kind of give everybody a quick overview. Good. Um, April the 21st, 2017, um, I received a call for a kidney. Now, um, a couple of weeks prior to this, I was up on Capitol Hill. Um, I was in a congressman's office and I passed out. Um, feeling embarrassed, I stood back up, sat down again, got my composure. After about five minutes, stood up, went to walk out. I passed out again. So uh, 
long story short, I called my dialysis facility, told them what happened, and they asked me to drive from Washington, D.C. back to Richmond. Um, when I walked in the nurse's office, she was crying. And I was like, well, what's wrong? She said, I hate giving out bad news. So I'm like, so what bad news? She said, well, you have um, hypercalcemia, which is elevated calcium level. So I'm like, okay. Didn't understand that, but I'm like, okay. She said, and you also may have sarcoidosis. I'm like, what? Yeah, you know, and if you have sarcoidosis, then you may be at risk for having either lung and or bone cancer. So I just got hit with all of that. Just walked in the office, hadn't done any blood work. Rheumatologist said, yeah, you know, there are different types of, you know, sarcoidosis, but basically the only thing they can save you is a kidney transplant. I come home, I tell my wife, April the 20th at 11.45 p.m., I get the call for a kidney. I'm like, wow, look at God work. So April the 21st, 6.30, I go in to get my transplant. I wake up from the surgery. The kidney did not. So now I have to do 24 hours of dialysis every other day. So I stayed in the hospital for 33 days, um, was released from the hospital to go do six days of physical therapy. Then I was released to go home. My kidney did not wake up, which means that I did not urinate for 47 days later. So during that time, um, the lesson that I learned was delay does not mean denial. I thought about all the folks that had been on a transplant list for like 10, 15 years waiting on a kidney. When I got the call for the kidney, I didn't think I deserved that kidney. So when my kidney started working, I really felt bad. Well, I should have felt happy. So let me just ask you, because we're just at, at the very end here. What's your parting advice to people listening? Don't be afraid to speak up for your health care. You now have the opportunity to um, control your own health data. But you can't do that if you don't take charge and elevate your voice. I know... Um, just getting a diagnosis can be traumatic. Um, some of the emotional duress that you that you may endure can be very impactful, not just for you, um, but for your family. I've seen people who've been abandoned because of their um, illness. But the one thing that I, I, I really want to emphasize, you have to persevere. You have to have that drive to want to live a better life for yourself. I just want to say it's been an honor to have you on the podcast, uh, truly inspired by your words, and, and, and just thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Caraballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at, at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. 
We'll have a new episode in two weeks. <laughs>